This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. This is our last lecture of the term, and this is uh, just a testament to the wide variety of kinds of things that we talk about at Libri. It's Tom Waits' music. Um, So, um, as I was getting ready to to give this lecture on Tom Waits' music, I was looking over some of the Libri lectures um, that we have on our database here, and I found a lecture on Tom Waits' music, which uh, kind of blew my mind. Uh, It was given at the English Libri a little while ago by uh, Andrew Jones. Um, wonderful lecture, so thank you, Andrew Jones. I almost considered not doing this lecture, but I'd already uh, signed up for it. So um, this is uh, certainly benefiting a lot from his talk um, on Waits' music. I'm just going to start by um, kind of a paraphrase of a Flannery O'Connor story called Revelation. Um, There's a very, very self-righteous woman named Mrs. Turpin who loves to categorize different kinds of people, thinks of herself and her husband Claude as the right sort, the responsible, hardworking, clean-living, respectable ones that God is bound to recognize. And after, this is, you know, this is very brief, you know, synopsis. After a traumatic episode in a waiting room, where a very pimply teenage girl calls her a warthog from hell. She This, this sends her into a tailspin, <laughs> and, uh, and she has this vision. At the very, very end of the story, <clears throat> and I'll just read a bit of it, slightly edited. This is her standing out in back of her farm looking at the sunset mulling over in her mind that if God made me a woman, he didn't make me a warthog. Um, And she's just very obviously traumatized by this experience. A visionary light settled in her eyes. She saw the streak as a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the earth through a field of living fire. Upon it, a vast horde of souls were rumbling towards heaven. There were whole companies of white trash clean for for the first time in their lives, and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who, like herself and Claude, had always had a little of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. 
They alone were on key. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. So the question at the beginning of this lecture is, is is there room in our notion of the kingdom of God for the truly jarring and strange? Uh, not just um, mildly eccentric, but but the true freaks. <laughs> um, is respectability next to godliness, or is it an obstacle to godliness? Uh, Tom Waits is a songwriter of some very, very peculiar songs, describing some very, very peculiar people. Uh, his songs are inhabited by the types of people that Mrs. Turpin sees. Um, frog leaping up this gangway to heaven. And uh, Tom Waits, as a songwriter, seems to elicit very, very extreme responses in people. Uh, There are many people who, after listening to one song, decide that's all they're ever going to listen to. And their response goes something like this. He's too strange, his words are bizarre, his songs are dark, his voice is like coarse sandpaper on my eardrums. Surely he's trying to hurt me. Um, and to these people, that's, that's one side of the spectrum. Um, to these people, I would say, uh, I think this lecture is for you, and I want to help you to get over that one song hurdle. Um, we can do it together. And I hope that even if your ears... Squirm, you'll at least be able to acknowledge that Tom Waits is up to something interesting, even if it's not your thing. Uh, and relatively speaking, this will take a small percentage of your lifetime, this lecture, so you'll be fine. Yeah. The, the other kind of people which make me more scared uh, are the people that really, really, really love Tom Waits' music, and to him, they're the ideal, like he's the ideal songwriter to them. Um, I have friends uh, that fit this category. You've been following his music for 30 plus years, um, exhibiting true devotion. And um, these are the folks that might say, if you have the audacity to lecture on weights, then you better get it right. And um, to those people, I will say, uh, this is an introduction to Tom Waits' music as an artist, uh, as someone worth noticing. If I fail to articulate the key point, or if I fail to play your favorite song, I'm sorry. There's only so much that I can do in this time. Uh, anyway, so, <clears throat> why why Tom Waits? Um, he's a singer and a songwriter who's, I think, made a really unique contribution to American music for a long, long time. Uh, his first album was in 1973, and he's made a total of, I think, of 22 um, studio albums, That doesn't count all the compilations and live albums and box sets that he's done in addition to that. Um, Lots of pop and rock musicians uh, and folk singer-songwriters are come and go, and they ride a particular musical trend, and they flash in the pan, and they fade away, and a couple years later, you're like, oh, that's that's so last year, or whatever. Um, Tom Waits, in his songwriting, has always seemed to, to be unconcerned with musical fads and trends. Uh, he, you get the sense that it's true, uh, reading some of his biographies, that, that you um, he's really writing and, and, and recording what he wants to write and record, which is actually more rare than you would think in, in show business today. He's always signed with labels that have given him complete artistic freedom. <laughs> 
to make the music he wanted to make. Uh, and the result has been a lot of, of critical acclaim, but not a lot of record sales. He's very well respected, but he's <laughs> never had a hit single or has never um, sold millions and millions of records. But he's someone who's been consistently taken seriously uh, by by people that know music. Uh, and he's actually grown in popularity. Um, many, many musicians and, and music producers respect him highly. So... Um, to give you a little bit of a sense of what I want to do tonight, we're going to talk very, very brief and inadequate kind of biography, um, a little bit of history, and then we're going to really, the, the point of the lecture tonight is to listen to as much music as possible, and uh, I've, it's painstakingly tro- chose the music based on which songs kind of demonstrate an aspect of, of who he is as a songwriter. So... Um, Tom Waits as a storyteller and creator, of, a storyteller and creator of characters, as a theologian of sorts, and as a producer of sounds. Um, I'm going to start by playing one song that's from a 1999 album called Mule Variations, just just to give you a little taste of of um, what he sounds like. And I, I picked a relatively accessible song to start with, so. Oh, that's him and his wife. I'll show you later. I tried to fit whole songs on one screen at a time, which means that this, the writing will be small. I apologize. Hopefully it's good enough. I still love you 
songs we're just going to listen to and we're kind of pass along. Not every song is going to is going to uh, get a lot of time in terms of discussing what it's about or anything. Um, so yeah, this is in 1999. Um, 
And one of the reasons why there's so little to say about biography here is that he's, he's quite a private person. There's been various attempts to write biographies of his life, more so than a lot of well-known musicians. He's managed to really protect the privacy of his family life, particularly, um, while at the same time remaining very friendly and personable in interviews. He's, he's, he's quite an interesting person in that way. He's, he's never been one of the rude kind of prima donna performers that alienate interviewers. Um, he always seems willing to talk, but he's very shrewd and always keeps the conversation on his own terms, mostly through an uh, extremely witty and offbeat sense of humor and crazy storytelling. Um, and yet you get the sense that you could talk to him for hours and, and never actually have learned much about who he is. It's <laughs> um, <clears throat> a quote from an article um, that I read it says, this is referring to Tom Waits' reluctance to kind of uh, wear his heart on his sleeve and, and, and uh, talk about himself. His attitude to autobiography is summed up in the lines from the song Tango Till They're Sore on one of his albums. And it says, uh, I'll tell you all my secrets, but I'll lie about my past. <laughs> <laughs> He's always appeared to work on the basis that if you make the yarns entertaining enough, why would anyone want to know the truth? <laughs> Uh, this is very true. If you ever watch interviews with him um, online, he's just—he's a constant stream of interesting, strange stories and funny sayings, and and uh, this is just his way of, of engaging with the public, I guess. Um, he's established a very peculiar persona in his music, uh, and he and he plays that up in interviews and performances. But it's sort of a um, so one of the personas he's created is sort of down on his luck, drunken poet, tramp. Um, this is very intriguing, of course, uh, and um, but not necessarily reflective of anything truly autobiographical. But um, ardent fans often have a deep desire to reach out and touch the real object of their adoration, um, to have some esoteric knowledge of, of the, the musician that they love. Um, and so lots of people have asked, who's the real Tom Waits? And it's really, it's kind of... A um, sort of a preoccupation in some ways. Um, he, my hunch is that he's sort of more of an ordinary, normal person than his songs would would imply. Um, but um, I'll just uh, yeah, just do a quick sort of run through of a couple of details, and then we'll listen to some more music. He was born in 1949, and from California, Southern California. He spread the rumor that he was born in a taxi cab um, because that fit his persona. <laughs> uh, probably not true. Uh, grew up in Whittier, California. He boasted that the only really special thing about Whittier is that Richard Nixon came from there. Uh, his parents were school teachers, fairly unremarkable sort of childhood growing up, but got really into music. Um, his parents would drive him down to, his dad would drive him down to Mexico to listen to mariachi music. And he was uh, fascinated by performance, musical performance, uh, as well as kind of the low-life sort of joints in which uh, struggling musicians tended to, to hang out and play. So when he grew older, he eventually got a job as a, a bouncer at this club and eventually, you know, played on stage and, and uh, but was very, very passionate about establishing a musical career and just trying to figure out how that would work. Um, his first album was in 1973. It's called Closing Time, and it's it's really it's pretty 
it's one of his more accessible albums. It's very um, sort of a collection of jazz and folk ballads, very piano oriented, most of it. Um, and very, uh, from the outset, it, it got a lot of recognition, but a, a very powerful um, sort of loneliness comes through his songs in this album and a lot of his albums. Almost every song is dealing with a deep loneliness of one kind or another. I'm going to play um, the song called I Hope That I Don't Fall In Love With You from that album. <clears throat> it would be great if this just works.
So this is um, this is sort of very typical of his first album. These kind of um, lonely guy at a bar, not hanging out with anybody else, but just kind of fantasizing about a woman on the other side of a room all evening, never having the courage to say anything. Um, not even that traumatized when she leaves. I guess I'll just have another drink. Um, I probably just fell in love with you. It's just so, it's so <laughs> deeply, deeply sad and deeply um, disconnected. Um, but a lot of his, a lot of his songs are kind of taking on characters like, like this and singing from their perspective. Um, <clears throat> but you get the sense this is maybe what this guy does every night. You know. He, uh, yeah, so he, Tom Waits himself uh, did have, uh, lived pretty hard for, for quite a while, drank pretty heavily, um, didn't have a lot of money, his career didn't really take off at first at all, um, even lived in his car for a while, in his, uh, his Buick, and, uh, but gradually begins to get known as a songwriter, was able to go on tour a couple times. 1980, he gets married to Kathleen Brennan, uh, who is um, getting married and and then just kind of getting more established as a musician. His life really turned around at this point. He he decided to stop drinking so heavily. And um, Kathleen Brennan was a musician herself, and they they ever since have been very very close collaborators. She's kind of managed his career, and they've done a lot of uh, songwriting together. And uh, 1983, his album, his career had a real turning point with an album called Swordfish Trombones, which uh, we'll play some some music from there um, in just a second. But that was uh, the real a, a turning point for him because it was his first album that he produced completely himself. He didn't have a producer. He really wanted to 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 have all the creative decision making power over uh, how his music was being produced, so which was really overwhelming. He'd never done that before, uh, but introduced all kinds of different things into this recording that he had never done before and that were quite unique. So Tony Bennett, the, the sort of crooner guy, <laughs> said of this album, it sounds like a guy in an ash can trying to send messages. <laughs> um, and this, so I'm going to play the, the, first, the first track from from Swordfish Trombones. We'll listen to that right now. It's very... Um, <clears throat> this album and his next album, which is called Rain Dogs, are, uh, it sort of coincides with him moving to New York and kind of trying to get used to living in New York City. And and they're both kind of, particularly Rain Dogs, um, <clears throat> people talk about them as kind of like a tribute to the homeless, um, the urban homeless. This is a lot of homelessness in his characters. Um, and we'll listen to this one right now. <clears throat> See if I can find it. Yeah. 
him as a creator of characters and a storyteller, because this is really what's going on in his music. Um, <clears throat> so he, um, his approach to storytelling in his music is really to create and, and embody very, very vivid characters. He, he's creating characters and, and filling them with life, and, uh, and he sings from the perspective of those characters very often. So they have a story, they have a temperament, they have a tone, they have baggage. <laughs> um, so you should approach a, a wait song much like you should approach like a, a work of, of fiction, a short story or something mm-hmm. like that, in which you would never assume that the writer was writing about their own life and their own opinions and their own, you know, necessarily. It's, it's, uh, he's, he's creating characters. And like any good writer, I think he doesn't write in generalities at all. His his, uh, his tendency is to revel in details and particularities. And this is what gives his stories, I think, a lot of power. Um, description of detail, minute detail. And um, without stating a lot of the story explicitly, is able to suggest quite a lot of a story just by the, the details. In, in some ways, it's like the negative space. If you think of a of a painting or a work of visual art, painting of an object of some kind, very often what's most powerful about the composition of a painting is not just the object that's being portrayed, but the space around it and the, the shapes that are made uh, negatively by the by the image itself. And uh, in a way, that's kind of the way he he writes songs um, without telling you a nice linear narrative. He's 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 um, he's describing lots of details that sort of um, the shape around those details is is the story because it allows you to enter in with your imagination and sort of fill in fill in a picture. Um, 
You can play a song called Soldier's Things. It's from the same album, Swordfish Trombones. And this is a, uh, a song... Well, I'll, we'll just, I'll just play it and then we can talk about it. Um, my friend Paul, who I consulted heavily for this lecture, this is his favorite song. Um, and uh, he's one of those people that I'm always nervous whenever I say anything about Tom Waits. <laughs> anyway, hi Paul, if you listen to this.
Yeah, any thoughts about this song? Mm. What is it? What are we? What are we? Yard sale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. It's yard sale objects, but like what? It, it's basically just a list of objects, right? Mm-hmm. You know, but but what's <laughs> what's he doing? <laughs> I mean, it's interesting because the a tinker, a tailor, a soldier's things. Yeah. It's presumably a reference to the John McClare novel, Tinker, Tailor, Soldier, Spy, mm-hmm. yeah. which leaves us wondering about the spy in the song. Yeah. Now, is, that, is there a nursery rhyme that that's based on, though? Tinker, Tailor, Soldier? Or is that... That I can tell you. I just know the spy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It suggests that, doesn't it? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So we're not, we're not told who the person is who's kind of speaking... But at least, at least in part of the song, the person speaking is the person who's kind of like offering up these things for sale, right? Whether it's uh, a widow or a child of a, of a dead soldier. We don't know whether the soldier died in war or whether it was someone who died after coming home. But, it, but it's basically unloading someone's things. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think that... Yeah. Every, everything in this box is a dollar, yeah, yeah. 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 That's, that's, I think, the most striking line of the song to me. Is like this, is, it's like his war medals. Like this one was for bravery. This, I'm going to keep this one. <laughs> There's something um, so understated in what he's doing, and then you know, what he's able to suggest by, by not saying too much is very, very powerful I think yeah. and since it's the story that isn't there yeah yep but this is part of, this is an example of his of his I think his gift as a songwriter is doing that is because you, you know you're we've just created a story by talking about it that he didn't tell us <laughs> he just listed some long checks but like but yet he yet he he everything about this song implies a, implies a potential backstory we're not sure on the details but it still still carries the emotional power and sadness of the, of of what that is you know that someone is gone and and obviously the person that's selling this stuff is not well off they're just maybe they're moving maybe they, but they're just they just have to get rid of it all you know all of the, all the physical reminders of who this person was and what they did. <clears throat> so, um, something you will notice if you if you listen to much Tom Waits music is none of his characters are living the high life. Um, he's always singing from somewhere near the bottom. So there's there's grime and there's desperation and scratching by. Um, all of his characters are rootless in some way. Some of them are literally homeless. Most of them are deeply lonely. Some of them are completely deranged. Um, his characters treasure things that many of us would view as garbage. Um, just a list of lines from some of the songs. I've survived on dreams and train smoke. I stir my brandy with a nail. Watching TV in the window of a furniture store. Uh, everything's a dollar in this box. Um, he's not like an outspoken social justice warrior or anything like that, but uh, 
he definitely his songs definitely sort of move in in low circles. He hasn't a concern and an eye for for the down and out people. Um, you won't find a Tom Waits song that's just a pure celebration of life circumstances. Like a isn't life awesome? Look at me. This, the, I, I defy you to find a Tom Waits song that does it. There's one song called "Big in Japan," which is, but even that's sort of ironic. He's talking about how he's how he's popular in Japan. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> which implies that he's not popular at home. Uh, but. Um, yeah, I'm going to play a couple songs. Both of them actually are from his uh, his album Mule Variations. It's, I think it's my favorite album. Uh, Mule Variations was written and uh, was produced in 1999, and it was a time in his life when he was very, very productive. He and his wife Kathleen Brennan were writing and writing and writing, and they had just a huge surplus of songs. And so there was a lot of selection going into this album in terms of what what actually made it on the album and what didn't. But this is, there's these two songs, one called Cold Water and another one called Pony. Um, and this just gives you a little bit of a sense of more of his sound. <clears throat> Oh. 
song because it's kind of a mixture of like the hardship of being homeless and then sort of a glorification of it at the same time mixed in um there ain't nothing sweeter than riding the rails just like what and then but the whole thing is bookended by waking up in the rain mm-hmm. right and uh the, the the first verse starts that the second verse starts that the song is called cold water right mm-hmm. and so there's um, yeah, I mean, in that song you hear just a very, a lot of his music since the 1980s has been very just blues influenced, a very kind of rock, trying to get like a, a very, um, the kind of harsh, unproduced sound. We'll talk about that more later. Um, this next song is, well, first I'll show you this picture. No, I'll wait on that. Um, <clears throat> This next one is called Pony. This is one of my favorite songs. It, it, it has lots of references to places and, and uh, starts with the words, I've been all over, boys. And then he names all these towns, but really he's just talking about a little corner of Mississippi. <laughs> it's like of, of rural Mississippi. There's a, there's a, mef- a reference to a town in, in Tennessee also. But, but um, again, this is, this is really a, a song about kind of longing, longing for a home that that you don't have, basically, and, and you're not sure if you ever will. Um. I see it all, boys. I've been all I call a blind out on the tree. 
that comes to my mind well I guess first of all we can just look at the song for a second Um, with his songs I feel like there's all kinds of references to things that I have no idea what he's talking about there's all a bunch of names I don't know who Burnt Face Jake is I don't know if that's common knowledge or not Uh, but it's kind of like a a tidal wave of imagery and and which communicates sort of yeah, he's communicating this person has a long, rough story, right? Uh, all his associates, associates of the places he's been. B&O stands for Baltimore, Ohio Railroad. Um, so he's riding trains and surviving on train smoke. And, and uh, But of course, like the little hint at the end drops that he actually sort of had a home. I don't know who Evelyn is, but his kitchen was, Evelyn's kitchen was a place where he felt at home with a dog at his feet. And... Who knows if that place exists anymore? Probably not. Um, so, who knows? The, the idea that someone who rides the trains has a pony at all—it's—it's yeah. <laughs> it's really just a way of talking about. I, you know, I hope there's a home somewhere. You know, um, 
Yeah. It's kind of one of the questions that comes to my mind is, is there, is there something sort of inauthentic about all this? Um, Tom Waits, at least these days, is pretty well-to-do, uh, respected, established, comfortable person. What is the, what's the, the drunken hobo poet persona all about? Um, and I think a lot of artists grapple with this and what to one degree or another. Do you have to, do you have to live something to tell it well? Um, and it's kind of a question about authenticity. What does it demand? Um, I don't think in order to make authentic and powerful work, an artist has to live everything they portray in their art. Um, I want to write a song about a person who gets into bar fights. Do I have to get into a few bar fights in order to really have something to say on the subject? Uh, I would say no. Um, and that's one of the reasons why God gave us imaginations. Um, I can imagine to some degree and make pictures of what a life or a circumstance or a decision or an experience would be like without actually it being my story. Um, so I can even maybe enter in and articulate experiences that are not my own. Um, if I do this well, other people can enter into the story as well. But it's not at all easy to do this well. And, and uh, to tell a good story in a song, you need to sort of imaginatively or emotionally tap in to something in yourself that's akin to what the character is experiencing, I think. Um, so, my example, if I was, if I don't get into bar fights, uh, but I do know what it's like to be frustrated and bored and easily offended and angry and hungry for respect and proud and restless. I know about all those things. <laughs> um, in terms of my internal life, I have quite a lot in common that would help me identify with a brawler, um, even if I've never actually done that myself. So uh, even in songwriting or in fiction writing, this requires a kind of empathy. Esther did a lecture a couple weeks ago on Charles Dickens' uh, really excellent lecture. You should check it out. Um, but talking about engaging, engaging literature with the imagination is kind of a, it's akin to, um, to practicing empathy, or it's a way in which we can almost flex the same muscles, the empathetic muscles uh, is to um, <clears throat> sorry, I just lost my my place here. Even though <clears throat> um, maybe writing a work of fiction or reading a work of fiction or enjoying <laughs> a song about somebody, um, it may not lead to me actually actively loving my neighbor, <laughs> but still, in a sense, it demands the same sort of uh, endeavor in terms of practicing empathy, trying to place myself in a story that's not my own and allow myself to experience something of the pain or, or the joy of a, of, a, of a person that's outside of my own head. Um, it's very much the kind of thing that is behind the words that Paul says, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. Well, how are we, how, how are we to do that in any real way? Um, well, by imagining what they're going through and trying to enter into it um, and experience something of what they're go going through even though it's not our story necessarily. Um, so we often hear those words as sort of a duty, but, but we don't often hear them as a, as a challenge to exercise and expand our imaginations uh, through empathy, through actually trying to, to 
um, place ourselves in the place of someone else. In order to write the kinds of, of characters that Tom Waits writes, I think it demands a lot of imaginative empathy. <laughs> um, in his music, particularly in his attention to the details of people's lives, I think that there is a real love for people that, that kind of shines through all the, the strangeness and the harshness and the sorrow. Uh, his, his characters, uh, there's sort of a, a dignity to their humanity that comes through. Um, <clears throat> and he really, I would say, sort of embodies them as fully as you can embody something in a song. Um, none of his characters are generic. Uh, none of them are an issue. None of them are sort of a cardboard symbol for some concept that he wants to communicate to us as an artist. Uh, they're all colorful and particular and, and very alive. So he's clearly observed. You can tell he's a real observer and uh, entered into experiences not his own. And, uh, and because he does this so well, I think it, it, it enables us to sort of enter into those experiences as well. I want to turn to just to, dis- to discuss what I meant when I said <laughs> a theologian of sorts. Um, so this may be taking liberties a little bit, but in a way, maybe not. Um, whether he actually has a faith, I don't know. I haven't really gone digging too deeply. Um, it's exactly the kind of thing he would not share with the public in a straightforward way. <laughs> um, Kathleen Brennan, his wife, is a devout Catholic, I, I hear. Um, Tom Waits has never made any sort of personal statement of, of faith or anything like that. And, and in a way, this is just a, a side note, I sometimes um, not a big fan of sort of sifting through a song writer's material for evidence of faith um, as if it's sort of a scavenger hunt for clues. I've definitely done that before with, you know, there's a temptation as a Christian to want to, to find Christian belief in the artists that I most respect. Right? But... Uh, the main reason why I think this is, is not fruitful is that uh, it, it treats the songs as something other than songs. It um, tends to ignore what, what Tom Waits calls song logic. It's like there's an internal aesthetic, there's internal aesthetic rules to a song, uh, ways of saying things that make sense within the world of the song, within the world that the song is created. And that's song logic. It doesn't have to make, to, to, to like actually make sense outside the song to you. Um, and uh, <clears throat> they're not necessarily professions of the songwriter's intimate beliefs either. So uh, in terms of, of his songs that, that address God in some way, you know, if you take them all together, you come up with a very confusing and ambivalent picture of who God is. Um, he's grappling with at least the idea that there is a God. Uh, if there is, what kind of God must he be given the world we live in? Um, his songs reflect a variety of contradictory ideas and feelings towards God's reality, his goodness, and just his involvement in general. And I'll just talk about it in a couple different categories. One is the absentee God. This this is sort of an attitude that comes through in some of his songs. Sure, God is real, but look around you. Clearly, he's not paying attention. Um, in one song, it's it's off an album called Heart Attack and Vine. Uh, he says, don't you know there ain't no devil? There's just God when he's drunk. So, sort of the evil and the mayhem in the world is not the result of some malevolent force um, at work. God's the only one who's there. 
but he gets sloppy and he loses control and the world jumps the guardrails sometimes. And that's just just God being uh, neglectful and, and out of it. Another example of a, of a song like this that, that, that is, is literally called God's Away on Business. And I'll, I'll play the song. It's, it's pretty rough. It's, uh, it's along the lines of the more sort of goblin sounding voice. Um, and uh, But anyway, I'll, I'll play it for you. <laughs> and then we'll listen to a, a different... Blood Money. Uh, if you're looking for an uplifting Tom Waits album, Blood Money is not the one to go for. It's very, very dark and bleak. Almost every song. It's, it's a hard, it's a hard album to listen to. Um, all of them are bleak in some way, but this this one is uh, doesn't break it up with any of. <laughs> When someone asked him about this song in, in an interview, he, he, this is where he referred to his song logic. <laughs> this is God's way on business. It's just the impression we get. You look at it, look around the world. It's like obviously no one good is really keeping things under control here. And this is his this is his take sort of mm. on that. Um, but always along the way, there's always like weird, weird, offbeat, humorous things to me. Anyway, maybe no one else sees funny things in this song, but just the, the, uh, who do we leave in charge? Killers, thieves, and lawyers. Like you know, 
this line we didn't get to it, but there, there's always free cheddar and a mouse trap, baby. It's a deal. It's a deal. <laughs> oh, oh my God. Um, anyway, he's he's just he's very very clever with his sort of one one liners. Uh, in a sense, the the next song, this one's called Georgia Lee, and this is really much more of a of a um, easier song to relate to. Uh, it's actually a, sto- a song that he wrote based on a true story um, in which a girl named George, who uh, named Georgia Lee Moses, she's a twelve year old girl um, who disappeared and was later found murdered. Uh, this was in nineteen ninety seven. She was an African American girl. And um, in an interview, he describes being really moved by this. I think he stopped at a, at a roadside shrine to this kid. Um, and he said, not to make it a racial matter, uh, but it was one of those things where, you know, she's a black kid. And when it comes to missing children and unsolved crimes, a lot of it has to do with timing or publicity. And there was this whole Polly Kloss Foundation up here. She's talking about a different thing. Uh, while Georgia Lee did not get any real attention. And I wanted to write a song about it. At one point, I wasn't going to put it on the record. There were too many songs. But my daughter said, gee, that would be really sad. She gets killed and not remembered, and somebody writes a song about it and doesn't put it on the record. <laughs> I didn't want to be a part of that, he said. <laughs> So it's, this gives you a wonderful little picture into his relationship with his daughter, I guess. Anyway, but this is very much, it's, it's, uh, it's much more of a personal and poignant song than God's Away on Business, and it's an actual story, but it's, but it's also, um, um, sort of voicing the problem of evil in a very, uh, in the, in the, in the, in the context of a, of a story. <clears throat> on mule variations.
It's much more of sort of a personal um, grappling with something. Then it's not as caricatured as God's away on business, but it's it's sort of asking some of the same questions. Um, you know, why weren't you there for Georgia Lee? I mean, it's interesting. It's not it's not a total denial of God's existence, or He's not saying everything is meaningless. In some in some senses, it's it's a comfort to ask the question: Why wasn't God? There, right? Because it's um, it treats this death as something having gone wrong, right? This wasn't this isn't just meaningless. It was a mistake. Someone dropped the ball. Um, so it's very, it's in a sense, very intimate and personal. But at the same time, the song I think is sort of has a universal character to it because it could take place any place, any time period. It could have been a, a white girl or an Asian girl, but you have no idea about the specifics of this. I actually, until recently, had no idea that this was a true story. Um, 
because it's kept general enough so that it has this kind of, I think, more of a... Um, it, it, it makes the, the question of why, why isn't God watching more, more of a general question <laughs> as opposed to just a particular story. Um, other attitudes towards God. I'm not going to play this song just for the sake of time, but uh, he's been known to, to poke fun at religion a bit. Um, or at least poke fun at fake religion. There's a wonderful song called Chocolate Jesus, which is on the same, the same album. And it's, it's talking about how he doesn't go to school, doesn't memorize books of the Bible. He has a special way of worshiping where he goes to the candy store and buys a chocolate Jesus every, <laughs> every Saturday or every Sunday. And, and uh, anyway, very satirical. Well, it's just hard to know where he's coming from with things like this. Is he, is he, is he, is he criticizing superficial religion? Is he mocking all religion? Or is he just having fun and we're reading too much into it? This is... I don't know. Um, but a, thir- a third area, which I think is really interesting, in which he engages with God, is is this idea there's a real need for cleansing from sin. <laughs> there's a real... Um, awareness, a brutal awareness of the brokenness, not just in the world out there, but in people... And we're carrying something that needs to be, we need a burden to be taken away from us. Um, there's a radical falling short that needs to be answered somehow. Um, he has a song called The Sins of My Father where he talks about going down to the pond with the sins of his father and his mother and his brother to sort of become clean again. Um, and I'll play this one. This is more sort of a gospel song or gospel um terms of the, the content of the lyrics called Down There by the Train. I don't think I have the words for this one. We'll just have to listen to it. Um, shouldn't be hard to understand his diction, right? Thank you. 
Judas Iscariot was carrying John Wilkes Booth. I should have had the words to this. So, so basically, the idea is, is um, it's kind of like taking the image of the, of the, of the people riding trains, you know, hopping trains and everything like that, but but. Uh, Using that image as a as a gospel image of the train, the train getting on the train, but like the the mercy of it is, there's a I know a place where the train rolls really slow. <laughs> you can get on. Anybody can get on. You know? um, <clears throat> that's kind of a beautiful image to me, actually. Um, but it's, it's it's very much an image of needing to be cleansed of our sin, right? <clears throat> Uh, I'm going to uh, move along to this, this last section, which is um, just him as a uh, Tom Waits as a producer of sounds. Um, a lot could be said. I think it's really worth paying attention to. Um, it, it may seem sort of irrelevant, but I, I don't know. It's it's he pays a lot of attention to the texture of the sounds that he's creating. Um, and this was an aspect of his work that took a serious turn to, in, on the Swordfish Trombones album. Um, and uh, he said this of the album. We'd done something on our own. He was very happy with it. Uh, it just felt more honest. I was trying to find music that felt more like the people that were in the songs. Rather than everybody being kind of dressed up in the same outfit. The people in earlier songs might have had unique things to say and have come from diverse backgrounds, but they all look the same. <laughs> um, and so that's, he, you know, all the weird sounds and the weird, like, sort of, um, I don't know, particularly in the area of percussion, uh, he's, trying to, he's trying to set the content of his words in a way that is coherent, um, in a way that sounds like... Uh, the people who he's actually talking about. Uh, there's a sort of a funny detail in one of his biographies where it says it's the first album he made without saxophone on it, and he was really nervous. Like, what, 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 you know, can I have a, can I not have saxophone on an album? And uh, and the writer says that into the saxophone void, Waits poured all manner of offbeat and obscure sounds. <laughs> he started to experiment with sounds made by by what I would call non-musical objects. Or, or found instruments. So, uh, on this album, there's someone banging on a brake drum, a cracked brake drum for a car. Um, there's a song where someone is smashing a, a, a bureau with a two by four over and over again. And, uh, and, um, <clears throat> there was a, a guitar player who, this was the first album that he recorded on, uh, for any, for a major label, and he thought that this is just what people did in the recording studio. <laughs> Um, but uh, nope, it was just Tom Waits that does that, and he was in the process of trying to experiment with the sounds. Tom Waits says, I'm very crude, but I use things we hear around us all the time, built and found instruments, things that aren't normally considered instruments, dragging a chair across the floor, or hitting the side of a locker real hard with a two-by-four, a freedom bell, a, a brake drum with a major imperfection, a police bullhorn. Uh, it's more interesting. You don't know... 
Now, you know I don't like straight lines. The problem is that most instruments are square and music is always round. <laughs> um, so at, at a superficial uh, level, I think we listen to it, it just sounds unproduced. It sounds like it's just he's lacking polish. Right. <laughs> Uh, someone forgot to finish the song in the studio. Um, and uh, especially when you compare it to any mainstream recordings that are just extremely polished and compressed and made to to, to sound very, very smooth. Um, and he, he really kind of shuns a lot of these techniques in his production, obviously. And it leans towards the, the, uh, the crunchy, distorted, muffled sounds, uh, dirty tones rather than clean ones. You get the sense if a guitar was buzzing really badly, he'd be like, no, leave it. That's perfect. Leave it, you know. Um, and this does actually, I think, fit with the lyrical content of his songs. So Tom Waits' uh, songs are more likely to mention some rusty metal object than a shiny new one. And a Tom Waits' recording is more likely to feature some rusty object than a shiny new one. Um, and so there's, there's a real attempt to be sort of coherent in, as a whole. Um, and the same principle obviously applies to his voice. Uh, well, I, I used to listen to a lot of blues music when I was in my uh, mid to late teens. And my grandfather told me once about this music that he did not appreciate. Um, people who's singing, this is I don't paraphrase, it was a long time ago. <clears throat> uh, people whose singing voices make them sound like they're dying should just die <laughs> and spare us the pain of listening to them. Um, and he later apologized for saying this, uh, not because he changed his views on music, but because he, he was worried that he'd hurt my feelings. Um, so he apologized, which is, it was really sweet. Um, but, you know, I, I don't... I don't <laughs> get it. Tom Waits would have offended his ears. Uh, he, was, he was into Irving Berlin and, you know, other things. But... Um, Sound of music. Yeah, sound of music. Was, you know. <clears throat> so yeah, uh, but he's really trying to craft an atmosphere as a way. It's almost like he's. It's almost like if you, if you compare it to like a a play on a stage, all his his messing around with weird sounds and everything is kind of like the set of, of a story. That's that's going to be you know the set can either be coherent with the story uh, in the play or it can be out of sync with it. Um, but regardless, uh, hopefully we've seen that he's, he's, he's up to something interesting, even if we don't really like what he's doing. Um, and he's going about it on purpose. It's not a result of pure neglect. Uh, this may make him harder to forgive <laughs> to you, but um, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I think really worth paying attention to. I'm going to play um, two more... Uh, I'm going to play one more one more song, and then we'll end with uh, this sort of spoken word poem that he did, which is um, "What's He Building in There," which is what I named the lecture after. Um, but we'll listen to uh, one that's another one of his gospel songs. Um, again, it's hard to know with someone like Tom Waits whether he's yeah, you, you know, it's very hard to know whether he's professing anything in particular or whether this is. He's just dealing with a whole vocabulary of gospel music that 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 fits what he wants to do in the song. Um, what's 
I mean, this song is, is just like, okay, what do we make of this? Um, it's, it's, it's clearly, it's clearly like trading on a lot of gospel song vocabulary. I mean, um, the world is not my home, but it's passing through is a gospel song. Um, and sort of come on up to the house, it's sort of an altar call, right? It's, it's a come, come up to the church, come up to, to heaven. Um, but it's the thing that's interesting about the song is the verses, um, are are really much more of a of a, of a of a sort of a pointed challenge to somebody. Um, so he's not just trading in 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 sort of Christian sounding cliches. Uh, it's kind of like a rebuke of a rebuke of self pity. <laughs> um, all your crying isn't going to do any good. Come down off the cross. We could use the wood. He's not talking to Jesus. I think he's talking to us. We put ourselves on crosses <laughs> in order to feel like martyrs, and uh, and just the you know, kind of undermining somebody's uh, confidence in what they have now. There's no light in the tunnel, no irons in the fire. You've got nothing going on here. You're singing lead soprano, but it's in a junk man's choir. I don't even know what that is, but it's not like a compliment, right? Um, <laughs> Yeah. Um, anyway. But the, the point you made before, uh, and you've been whipped by the forces that are inside you. So mm-hmm. Inside you as well as all the... You know, he's dealt with the outside forces. And yeah. The songs, but High on top of your mountain of woe. It's so, yeah, it, it sounds just like a, a get over yourself. And... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I thought I would just play this last song and then we could open it for discussion. If you, if you are, uh, need to get going, that's just fine at the Brie. We, we usually have time for conversation and questions. And, um, but, uh, if you need to go, there's nobody, nobody will be offended or anything like that. This last song is just, uh, again, I don't have the lyrics out for it. It's not really a song as much as it is just a soundscape with speaking. <laughs> And uh, <clears throat> it's interesting to me because it's it's um, yeah it's it's uh, 
it's sort of from the perspective of a nosy neighbor looking across the street at this guy who's up to something, and you're not sure what he's up to, but you interpret everything that you see in the most sinister possible light. Like, what is he doing? Um, and so it has this kind of like voyeurism kind of like it, it the, you know the, per, the the narrator of the song comes off sounding like the real the real freak by the end I think, um, and uh, you know people have conjectured at times whether this is this is sort of Tom Waits's impression of other people looking at him. <laughs> what is he doing? What is he up to in there? What is, um, anyway, I'll leave that up to your interpretation. But we'll we'll just listen to it. I I personally just I have nothing really to say about the meaning of this other than I find I really enjoy it. I think it's really funny. But you can you can. Ha, ha, ha. 
going to end <laughs> but if anybody wants to stay and talk about Tom Waits that's great we could also play many more songs if you want to if you're into that if not I understand um, but yeah any any uh, questions or comments or thoughts is anyone like a Tom Waits fan alright Martin well, I, I, you know what? So, I wasn't but now I am <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I consider myself a Tom Waits fan. That does not mean that I can listen to lots and lots of Tom Waits for a long period of time. I think it's this is the most I've been telling people like this is the most Tom Waits I've listened to in a short period of time. And it's it's not it's not easy. I find it pretty hard. Um just like scanning and there's lots of songs I've never even heard he's written so much in preparing for this lecture I was just trying to like catch up on a lot of things he's done but any any thoughts or questions Martin yeah well so in the beginning of your lecture you you apologized uh, for not playing you know his, his best songs according to our opinion. Yes, yes, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You didn't apologize preemptively for not talking about his role in Jim Jarmusch movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was wondering if you wanted to take the opportunity <laughs> yeah. to apologize for that omission now. Sure. Yeah, yeah, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, so he uh, he has an acting career as well that that has gone back quite a few years. He was, I think, his first movie with Jim Jarmusch was uh, Down by Law, which was a you know a, a very quirky, strange story about three people that wind up in a jail cell together and and. And eventually break out. Um, he was in um, Coffee and Cigarettes, which is kind of this weird. How would you describe that? That's drummers, isn't it? Yeah, Coffee and Cigarettes. Yeah, yeah, it's like a series of vignettes, sort of conversations. Mm-hmm. He's in one of them um, as himself. I think there's, there's a, mostly people just playing themselves, sitting down at a diner, smoking and drinking coffee and just talking, and it's, it's very, very like funny. That. Yeah, yeah. Um, He's in a conversation with the musician Iggy Pop, and Iggy Pop is like a huge Tom Waits fan and is geeking out, and Tom Waits is just completely putting him in his place over and over again. It's really, it's really kind of painful to watch, but anyway, um, he's in uh, a variety of, he's in a, a film called The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. Never saw it. Um, and just recent, just the other day, saw a preview for a movie coming out called uh, Licorice Pizza. Has anybody heard of this? It's, it's, it looks really quirky and weird. Anyway, he's in. There he was on the screen. I'm like, oh, Tom Waits. Anyway, um, yeah. Any other? I'm not sure. Any other? I'm not. I don't know a lot about his acting career. But well, his, his, his music is in one of the, one of Jarvis's other movies. It's, yeah. it's the one that's it's sort of based around getting to to Graceland. I Okay. I can't remember the title of it now. Yeah. I don't remember either. Yeah. But it's al- it's almost like his songs are acting and then, and then and then to be able to act a part in a whole film is just like 
it's like he just expands to fill the, to fill the whole space. Like he, he's, um, he sort of took to acting like really well without, I think, much training or anything like that, but just, I think it's sort of what he's already doing in his songs. <laughs> well, in, in Down by Law, he and his, uh, his fellow convicts very memorably sing, I scream, you scream, we all scream for ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's what What's that? No. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. Um, one of the actors in the cell with him is the Italian comedian guy who's in Life is Beautiful. What's in his name? Um, yeah. Anyway, very, very funny. Um, I think generally in America, he's usually yeah, referred to as the guy from Life is Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Benini? Benini? I think it is. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. It's okay if you're a little shell shocked. It's fine. Yeah. Does he fit? Any, I, I, the way you present it, it looks like he's just standing completely alone. Hmm. Uh, obviously, he's, he draws on him. He's a Dylan fan himself. Mm-hmm. He talks a lot about Dylan. Mm-hmm. Uh, but who else does, does he see? Does he look to? Mm. And, does he, and yeah. has anyone come? Done anything with him? With his work? I, uh, that's sort of impossible because it's so personal. Well, no, he, he's collaborated with people, and he's, his songs are covered periodically by people. Um, he, he has a lot of influence. Like, he's... I mean, he, he's very... The building in there would be rough to cover. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> what would be the point? <laughs> um, he... He was very, especially early on, he's very influenced by sort of beat poets, and he loved, he loved Jack Kerouac and a lot of mm-hmm. his, a lot, a lot of his sort of like spoken word stuff with, with, you know, with more sort of jazz oriented music behind it is, is very much trading with that. And then a lot of old blues stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. he, like he really, uh, I mean, it's, it's a couple of the songs I played from Mule Variations mm-hmm. here, they're just, uh, He's gotten really good blues players to play with him. Like the harmonic, there's a couple of amazing harmonica solos uh, that are like well known. I forget who it was, maybe Paul Butterfield or some some like real uh, well known players. Um, I forget who it is. Mm. I forget. Anyway, um, and he's yeah, he's he's uh, he has his people he works with normally because they get him and they doesn't have to explain what he's trying to accomplish. And they're you know very accomplished musicians, but but you know are able to play the weird kind of just jointed sounding stuff that he wants. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it sounds like it's, he, 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 um, yeah, he has a lot of respect for different musicians and a lot of, and, and they showed a lot of respect back. Like, look, on the album, um, Swordfish Trump, no, it's, it's um, Rain Dogs. Like, he got Keith Richards to play on, like, really? three of the songs, which is like, Keith Richards never does that for anybody, huh. um, but he like loved Keith Richards' guitar playing. And Keith Richards was like, "Yeah, Tom Waits is the real deal." So like, totally. <laughs> so he so he goes and plays, you know. Um, <clears throat> yeah, but it's never but it's never like um, it's always going to be a Tom Waits song still. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what instruments does he play? Piano. G- guitar and piano. Yeah, guitar. yeah, mostly. I think I think he plays other things too, but he. Um, Part of this, yeah. Um, and he gets, and then you probably heard a variety of different voices that he that he that he sort of like accesses 
he's got the, just the blah, 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 kind of the, you know, the, the goblin voice. But then he also has uh, a much more melodic kind of, it's still rough, but it's, but it's yeah. quite beautiful um, melodic voice. And then he's got kind of a tinny kind of voice that he can do sometimes where he, where he actually sings through a bullhorn. Like he, he if it live, he'll often sing through a bullhorn into the mic. So you get this really, really, he's got this low growly voice, but the bullhorn takes all the bass out of it. So it's just sort of this high scratchy version of it into the, into the mic. That's what the song Chocolate Jesus, he does that. He, um, and it's just this weird sound, you know. Yeah. I was kind of wondering what it looked like to see him like, person performing. Yeah. Like he's got a lot of different hats to put on. Yeah, he does. Yeah, he's very, um, he, yeah, he's definitely, a, I mean, that, he's kind of like sort of a vaudeville actress, and he's crazy, right. like, and he does a lot of crazy stuff. Um, I sort of on purpose didn't show any videos, because it's just, it's just too much to talk about. <laughs> he kind of like dances around, and, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but he's he's got an incredible sense of humor. He's he's um, just totally offbeat, strange sense of humor. He's done a whole the whole fake press conference where you where he's just talking about an upcoming tour and the reasons why he's doing this tour and how he, he chose the tour cities based on the constellations of the sky that he superimposed <laughs> over a map. And, you know, because from ancient times, people looked to the sky for guidance, and so that's what we did. And, and then, like, and he's just like, what in the world is going on? And then, and then, but there's all this flash, flashing cameras and all this buzzy sort of back noise. And then the camera pans away at the end, and he's just in a big room all by himself. There's nobody in there at all. It was, it was all just, yeah, anyway. Oh my gosh. This is so funny. <laughs> yeah. 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 Jonathan. Can you just uh, give me a sense of uh, the record sales? You talked about how he was like, critically acclaimed, but record sales. Yeah, I don't really. Kind of a scale or. I don't know. I don't. I don't have any numbers to quote. I'm afraid. Um, I mean, he's, I think he's he's done well. He's like a well-established musician now, and, he, um, and he's quite. He's quite. A, I've, I'm not sure how old he is actually, but um, but it's like he's never like gone platinum or anything. He's, he's never been like a huge superstar. It's always just like um, he gets respect, but not. But just because of what he's producing, it's just not. It's not accessible to huge numbers of people so um, I don't I don't really know I don't really know in terms of the accessibility with music do you think it's the lyrics he writes or the goblin like voice or comedy <laughs> I think it's like, the sound the initial shock of just the sound because I, I, yeah. I haven't been super familiar with his work and I, like you started off with Hold On and I was like alright yeah. Uh, I hope that you don't fall in love with you and like, all right, and, uh, underground shit. Uh, well, that was, I was kind of like, I did that on purpose because I wanted you to hear like some, some of his, er, some of his early, well, Hold On isn't really early, but it's, but it's hearkening back to sort of a, a different way of singing and he still sings that way sometimes. But then like there's this turning point where he's like, I'm going to do whatever the heck I want and, and I'm, I'm going to try to sing this song about basically like, homeless people in New York that live underneath the subways, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to sing that sweetly, you know, and it's just, bah, 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 you know, <laughs> and, and uh, yeah, and 
I didn't start with that on purpose because I thought let's, let's ease you in a little bit. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He has uh, 1.7 million followers on Spotify. Hmm. Okay. So maybe good. not a pop star, but pretty darn close. Pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's not a flash in the pan in any case. Yeah, he's, been, he's been trying to trying to do it I mean, for. My sense is any of these any of these pieces uh, yeah, on on their own don't mean anything. Yeah. But over four decades. Yeah. 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 I mean. Yeah. There's something there. Yeah. For sure. I mean, there's a whole like, persona. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like it was nice having you preface what we were getting ourselves into. <laughs> is that helpful? Yeah. <laughs> Like when you said that, he's like working with characters, and it's like, oh, again, the whole acting thing makes sense. Mm-hmm. But I think jumping into this, it maybe be more confused. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To your point about the all the followers on Spotify, I think maybe more what Ben was getting at is that you never hear Tom Waits on the radio, and you know you can't buy Tom Waits T-shirts at, at Target when he's on. He's on tour. He's not filling sports stadiums. He's never going to do the halftime show of the Super Bowl. <laughs> yeah, that would be the, that would be the best halftime show ever. It would be so weird and so. Yeah, he is always sort of just shy of the mainstream. I think. Yeah. And, and I imagine will remain so. I mean, he actually had a, had a time in his life where he actually could have. Uh, and I don't know much about this, but but uh, sort of in the middle of his career, there was this big potential deal of writing a musical called Frank's Wild Years, and there was there was this is my friend Paul that told me this. I don't I don't really know the details of it, but but basically, um, he kind of just refused to to grab the money and make this big splashy show that everybody wanted him to do, and mm. and. He basically just kept on making weird albums <laughs> and, uh, instead of going this other route, yeah. you know. Um, anyway, so yeah. Respect him. Yeah. Well, maybe maybe mm-hmm. the thing to do is just listen to one more song and then call mm-hmm. it an evening. Is that yeah. okay? Awesome. <clears throat> um, I asked Martin a couple hours ago what his favorite Tom Waits song was, and he said "Big in Japan." Oh, okay. So. Ah, I wonder if I have it here. One second. <laughs> yes. Okay, so this is the one sort of like I'm a superstar kind of song, right? <laughs> and this was actually, this was, this song came out of an idea he had where he had like a little pocket tape recorder and recorded the sound, I think of him beating a, a wooden bureau to pieces. <laughs> and there's something, I forget whether he actually sampled the recording, and so this part of the percussion, I don't, I don't remember, but basically this is, that is the basis for the sound. <laughs> Thank you. 
sorry. singing through a bullhorn. <laughs> Martin, do you care to share why that's your favorite song? Or <laughs> No. <laughs> thanks, thanks for asking. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's good. It's a good song. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I really think it spoke for itself. Right? What am I going to say about it? <laughs> it's now Christina's favorite Tom Waits song as well. <laughs> Look what you did. <laughs> Two to four on zero. <laughs> 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 